All right. Um, so some of you know where we're going to start. And so a few disclaimers as we begin. Um, we're going to spend more time in another book as we're introducing the book of Acts than we're actually going to spend in Acts uh, today. Second disclaimer. All right. So I want to get this across. Guys, uh, today is going to be very different from our normal style. Um, it's going to be a lot of teaching. So if you don't like teaching, um, pray. <laughs> Seriously, you ought to pray, Lord, keep me engaged. Um, now, I know we have an element in our church that has great value. They put a lot of value in the background and the backstory, and they have for many years. There's also a groundswell among many of our women here at the church. Danny alluded to our women's ministry, and they have really been digging in and gaining great interest and excitement even about the kinds of things that we're going to be looking at today, or at least I hope they're excited. So if all the men go to sleep, hopefully that large and growing group of women will stay engaged. Um, but here's what I ultimately want to say on that topic, okay? It's going to be different. There's not a lot of preaching aspects to this. But what we're covering today matters. This really, really matters. So don't think we're just wasting time, uh, filling time. Uh, it really matters. And you ought to, so we're going to hit a lot. We're going to say a lot of facts. There's going to be a lot of facts. But you ought to be saying, Lord, help me to retain this information because it matters. Hey, ladies and gentlemen, listen. If you want to know God, you want to know God, grow in your knowledge of God, you can know God by a relationship directly with Him through Christ and the Holy Spirit teaching you about God. But if you want to really grow in your knowledge of God, at some point, you are going to have to get your Bible out. You're going to have to get your Bible out. You've got to start reading the Bible. So if this is not part of your life, you need to make it part of your life. You've got to be reading the Bible. You need to be studying the Bible. And so now I'm going to take that to the next step. If you want to grow in your knowledge of God, you need to not just read the Bible and study the Bible. You need to take advantage of some of the tools we have available. Everybody in here, get you a good study Bible and use it. Use it. Say, so what are some good ones? I don't know all of the good ones. Larry can tell you many of them. I, some of you have a life application study Bible. That's a great Bible. Some of you... I am right now using the ESV Study Bible. This excellent, not good, excellent, the ESV Study Bible. It is excellent. John MacArthur has a great study Bible. It may take you three or four years in your private reading to get through all of the Word of God. Go through Now, don't put the study notes above the Word of God, but let it enhance. Go to the Word of God first and then second to those notes and all those things. After you finish going through one of those study Bibles, now bring the other one in and start using it in your next round of going through the Word of God. Get into it. Now, here's what I'm saying. One of my habits that I would encourage you to do is in my own private reading, I do not launch into reading a new book of the Bible, but that I first pause and read the introduction in my study Bible. I'm using the ESV study Bible right now. It will have three or four pages of notes. And I know starting a new book tomorrow, allow some extra time. Do that. In fact, let me go further. Everybody, when you're using this tool, do not launch into reading chapter 1 until you say, I have a good understanding of what this introduction of the study Bible has laid out for me. So today, we're going to be doing some of those types of backgrounds, some of those things that you would actually learn. And some of you have already started this. 
And you may hear some of the exact things that you have, many of you in the last few days, knowing where we're going, you've already been reading the introduction in your study Bibles, and praise the Lord for that. And so this will be some repeat for you, new to other folks, reminder to some, and some of the things we'll cover may not be in those, but this stuff matters uh, greatly. Uh, uh, and Grace, I'm going to throw you another little curveball. I think I have the verses listed first. Can you hop ahead? I want to jump in just a moment to the first note that these guys have in front of them. So let's begin right here. How should we study the Word of God? If you're taking notes, and I would encourage you today. Oh, by the way, I know what you're already thinking. Did anybody notice we got 50% more notes than usual? Yes, that is true. It's because of the nature of today's message, all right? And you'll, you'll just hang in there and keep up with it. Today is a great book. Get you one of the three-ring binders. Take those notes. Pop, pop it in there. That'll be the first installment, and then we'll add through it uh, for years to come. All right? <laughs> just, just being real. That's what's going to happen, Lord willing. All right. How should we study the Word of God? Write this down. The best, listen, the best way to study the Word of God, the best way to study Scripture is the way he wrote it, one book at a time. One book at a time. That's the best way. In your private reading, don't be hopping all around. Study one book at a time. Or if you have a reading plan as you in the New Testament and then a little bit over in the, in the uh, poet, poetical section of, of the Old Testament and then some New Testament, that's fine. But be going through a book of the Bible. You say, Jeff, what's the advantage of that? Well, first of all, let me say, let me make clear, that is not the only way to study the Word of God. It's not the only way. We would be crazy not to do some of these others, other ways of studying. There are topical studies. There are word studies. There are themes, okay? So topical study. We're going to do, again, word studies. We're going to study this person's life in the Bible. And that may have us going around here and there, but we're really focusing on this, this person's impact and how God used them. Those are great, but the best way is to just go through the Word of God the way he wrote it. Here's the advantage of that. It's called expositional. I don't know, and we, again, we've got some ladies learning expositional teaching of the Word of God and how to really break it down. And they're taking very difficult classes on that. And some of you are going to sign up for that. And I don't know that I do pure expositional preaching. I'm sure I don't. I do a version of that. Uh, again, I'm going to go to Brother Larry again. His dad, I think, worked for, for Duke's Mayo, right, years and years ago. So good thing about Duke's is it has twang, right? It's got twang. It says right there on the label. So my version of, of expositional preaching contains expositional preaching with some twang, right? So it's got a little extra on top of that. So hopefully within it, that's what our goal is, is to go through the Word of God. Why? Because you get to pick up where you left off. It keeps us in contact, context. You're going to be much more accurate in your interpretation of the Word of God. Watch. You don't get to ride your little hobby horses. Have you ever seen preachers that, boy, they got like four or five things they like to preach on, and no matter where they're at, they end up back on those same four or five things. Well, here's how that happens. They're bent on doing that no matter what the Bible says, or they're bent on doing that, and they're going to hop around and find the passages that always back up what they want to preach on. When you go through a book of the Bible, you don't get to skip things that are hard to understand. You don't get to skip things that are hard to accept. I don't like that. Never going to preach on it. Well, when you're going through a book of the Bible, you've got to take it as it comes. And as you've heard us say, we're going to go where the Bible takes us. This is the best way. It's not the only way. But our steady diet wants to be going through the Word of God expositionally, one book at a time. So would you join me in Luke chapter number 1. Luke chapter one, number 1. This is where we'll spend most of our time. Again, not breaking down the verses this morning, introduce, introducing our new book. Luke chapter number 1. This is where we should all be beginning. Verse number 1. Luke 1, verse 1. 
He writes, Inasmuch, everybody ready? Here we're going. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative, inasmuch as many, many people have done this, the author here is acknowledging a lot of people have done what I'm getting ready to do. I'm not the first. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, many people have done it. He gives some examples, an idea, a label. Just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. Many people have written about this, what's been going on among us. And just as many of them who are eyewitnesses from the beginning. What's the author saying? What has he already told us? If you're paying attention, I wasn't at the beginning. I wasn't eyewitness to all this stuff. Wasn't, wasn't an eyewitness. There's the eyewitnesses. There's those who were there at the beginning. I'm not that. But verse 3 says, again verse 2. Just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. It seemed good to me also. So you catch what he just said? I'm not that. I'm not them. Nevertheless, it seemed good to me also. Having, see that past tense, having followed all things closely for some time past. What does that mean? Been doing this a long time. I'm not one of them, but I've been doing this for a long time. And that's why he says, it seemed good to me also. I know them, but it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time, to write an orderly account for you. I want to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. Most excellent is a title that is used elsewhere in the New Testament for a very high-ranking Roman official in the Roman Empire. So whoever this Theophilus is, he has earned, he, he garners the, the label most excellent Theophilus. And so our author says, it seems good to me too. I want to write this so that you'll have an orderly account of what's been going on among us. Why? Verse 4. That you may have certainty. I want you to have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Everybody catch that? You catch what he's saying? You already know some things, but I'm writing this compilation so that you'll have certainty in what you've been taught. I want to add to what you are. You know some things. I want to give you more things, and I'm doing this so that you'll have certainty and assurance for what you've been hearing and what's been going on. So back at verse number one, one last time, not one last time, but one more time. Look at it quickly. Others have taken to compile, many of them, to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us. What's that phrase mean? What's this things that been, have been accomplished? Now, if you would, flip over to Acts chapter number one. And let's see what he meant by that phrase, the things that have been accomplished among us. Acts chapter number one, verse number one. And then you'll know why we went to Luke first. Verse number one of Acts one. And again, we're not diving into these three verses today. We'll really get into them next week, Lord willing. In the first book, see what he's doing? Now he's referring back to the first, in the first book, O Theophilus. So now we know of 27 books of the New Testament. Two of them are written to this guy, Theophilus. Obviously they're connected. So if, if we only had this one, if we only had this one, not the other, we'd be wondering, well, where's the first book? But now we know these are connected. Same writer. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. I dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. I dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. I dealt with all that Jesus began to do 
and teach. I dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. If you'll read the Gospel of Luke, you'll find that's what he did. He covered this life of Jesus, verse 2, until the day when he was taken up. If you read Luke, the Gospel of Luke, the last paragraph literally is the ascension of Christ. So the author here is starting this book, volume 2, referring back to volume 1, and he's picking up where volume 1 left off. Here's what I don't know. I don't know how long of a gap between his starting of writing Acts, I don't think it's very long, between the starting of writing Acts and his finishing of writing the Gospel of Luke and giving that to Theophilus. Apparently, apparently Theophilus might have already had volume 1 and then volume 2 comes a little later, not much later, but verse 1 says, In the first book, O Theophilus, I've dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after that he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. So he ascended when? After he's given commands, Jesus ascends after he first gives commands to the apostles in the power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's in Christ. He gives these commands to the apostles. Now, verse 3, quickly. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs. The King James even adds the word many infallible proofs to get along the idea many proofs. How does he show himself alive? By many proofs appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. So today I want to get across, Lord willing, six things by way of an introduction to our book. And on the sixth one, we're going to have to expand upon that a good little bit. All right? Number one, let's start going through some things. We need to know these things before we just launch into a book we're going to be in for years, potentially. First of all, who is the author? Who is the author? Luke. Luke is the author of both Luke and Acts. Luke is the author of, of both the Gospel of Luke and Acts. And now we know, hey, by, as you're writing this and as you're listening to this, pray, Lord, help me to retain this information. It's a lot of background today. Help me to really get the things that are the most important, this man Luke. Let's write down three things about Luke that I want you to know. Number one, we know that Luke was a physician and a historian. Colossians chapter number 4, verse, verse number 14, Paul calls him that beloved physician. So this man is a doctor, a physical doctor, and he's a great historian as we will be seeing. Great historian. Second thing to note about Luke, number two. He was a very loyal friend and a co-worker of the apostle Paul. Guys, you're going to pick up on this. This guy, this author that we're going to be studying in his book, he loves the apostle Paul. Now, he's going to be real with us. He's going to tell the truth, the ugly truth about Paul in chapter number 9 of Acts. But then he's going to say a lot of really good things. He's going to paint his mentor and leader. Uh, I think it's safe to say Luke loved Paul more than anybody else on earth besides the Lord Jesus Christ. He, he is a fiercely lo- when When no one else with, was with Paul at his dying time, Paul writes a letter to Timothy and says, Timothy, I want you to come where I'm at. I want you to come be with me. Only Luke is with me. He loved the Apostle Paul. Third thing I want you to note about this man is he's the only Gentile. As you're writing Fun little fact, real quick. Luke's two volumes, the Gospel of Luke and Acts, are the two largest books in the New Testament. 
Luke is about 35 foot, they tell me, on a scroll. If you do it on a scroll, it would be a 35 foot scroll. And, the God, and, and Acts would be a 32 foot scroll. Hard for me to imagine what I'm about to tell you. They say that Luke's two, two books make up almost 25% of the New Testament. That, that staggered me in volume and in word number and all those things. So this guy. Now, quickly. Before we leave to the second thing. So who's our author? It's Luke. He, we have this information. Because he's a Gentile, if you were to just read Luke and Acts quickly and then go and compare it with the other Gospels, here's what you would find. Boy, Luke is very interested in Gentiles. He's interested in Samaritans who are half Gentile, half Jews. He's interested in women. He's interested in children. Publicans, tax collectors, Roman centurions. He really goes out of his way to show these people in a good light receiving the mercy of God. Well, we can understand why. He's the only Gentile. He wants to let it know we're not outcasts. We're in the plan of God. Before I leave this one, one last thought. Luke does not mention himself anywhere in either Luke or Acts. So how in the world do we know he's, he's the author? Uh, well, this would be a long, deep study that you would get really, really bored with. If you want to check it out, check it out on your own. But I'll, I'll mention three things. Not right, mention three things. Number one, catch what I'm saying. As we go through Acts, there's going to be these we sections. So for 16 chapters, he's going to write, he did that, and they did that, and they, they, they. And then when he gets to chapter 16, all of a sudden, you'll, you'll catch, if you were reading it, you'd probably notice, like, whoa, what just happened? We did. So he joins in in chapter 16. And there's several chapters in the last 12, probably like five times, which there are these we sections. And so the experts have noticed and compared other things that are written about him to what was going on in those sections. And he names other people, but the other books name him. He doesn't name himself so they can figure out, oh, the we is Luke. Second reason we know it's him, this is very simple. The early church fathers, these are people that like lived at the end of the first century and into the second century, even third century, that are not named in the Bible. These are just well-known pastors and theologians and teachers and preachers and prophets of that day, not in the Bible, they all said, as if it was common knowledge, Luke wrote Luke and Acts. Third little hint is he has the largest cook vocabulary of anybody, any of the writers in the New Testament, which you might expect a doctor to have. He has the largest vocabulary, even larger than Paul, surprisingly. Second thing to notice, what is our date? This matters. Let's touch this. Write it down. It appears that Luke and Acts were written from Rome, the capital city of the empire, somewhere around A.D. 61. That's when, from Rome, A.D. 61. But we're going to go further than that and say during Paul's first Roman imprisonment. So somewhere around A.D. 61, 62, from Rome, Paul's first Roman imprisonment. Now, I know as I'm saying that, a lot of you are writing that. And some of you be like, I'm not going to remember that little fact. Some of you are like, I don't even know what that means. Paul's first Roman imprisonment. What does that mean? Okay. We're going to be introduced in chapter number 9 to this man named Saul. His name's going to become Paul. And he's going to get saved. And he's going to become an apostle. So track with me. Why did I say his first, I just didn't say first imprisonment, first Roman imprisonment. Why do I have to add Roman imprisonment? Because there was other imprisonments. This man's going to get saved. In chapter 13, we're going to find him being sent on a missionary journey number one. He's going to go on a missionary journey number two, missionary journey number three. As he's finishing the third missionary journey, he's going to come back to Jerusalem. And he's going to be bringing him and a group a love offering. 
When he comes, he delivers the love offering to the poor, beat down, persecuted Jews who are believers, Christians in Judea. He delivers this money, but then he goes to the temple and he's going to be beaten and arrested by his own people, the Jewish nation. They hate this man, Paul. They hate him because his message is saying that this man, Jesus of Nazareth, who died on a cross, is supposed to be the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. They don't think any of that's true, so they want to persecute him. They end up putting him in prison in Israel. So he's in prison for two years in Israel. But Paul has an ace in the hole. You want to remember this for later. He is a Roman citizen. And as a Roman citizen, when they want to give him a crooked trial, he appeals. He says, I appeal to Caesar. I can, because I'm a Roman citizen, I don't have to stand trial at a Jewish court. I can have my case heard by Caesar himself, which would end up being Nero. And so he appeals, and he goes to Rome. He travels in chapter 27. He arrives in chapter 20. Now, listen, the book just ends suddenly, abruptly. Paul arrives. He's under house arrest, and he's sharing the gospel, and he has freedom to do that. And Luke says he was under that house arrest for two years. And that's... During those two years, in his first Roman imprisonment, is why we think he wrote Luke, who's with Paul, wrote these two books during that two-year first imprisonment of Paul in Rome. Again, AD 61, 62. Here's some people. No, that's too early. That's not when it was written. It was actually written probably 70 or 80 AD. A lot of people want to late date the New Testament. That actually matters. I'm not going into why. Here's why we know, no, that's crazy thinking. Now watch. If someone is writing a book about the early history of the church, if the events that I'm about to have you write down had already occurred by the time of writing, they would have included these things. Write them down. Number one, Luke would have included James' martyrdom in A.D. 62. He would have included that. So apparently he finishes writing. He just pauses very abruptly. He leaves Paul in prison. He never tells us. What actually happens after that? How does Paul's trial end up? Luke doesn't cover that. He would have had he written later. So the Lord's half-brother, that James, there's several Jameses, another James, one of the 12 apostles is going to be killed in chapter 12 of Acts. He covers that. But the, the most well-known lead pastor of Jerusalem is the Lord's half-brother James, who was not one of the original 12. He's going to die in AD 62. Luke doesn't include it. Why? It hadn't happened yet. Second thing, Luke does not include Nero's persecution of Christians that began after Nero. Hey, but newsflash, everybody, everybody listen, newsflash. Sometimes dictators who are unchecked in their power can do wacko things. And nobody stops them. Yeah, still happens today. Crazy-minded, legacy-minded dictators who are not checked in their power. Nero became a madman. He ends up setting fire to Rome, his own city. He's crazy. And then he needs somebody to blame it on. He blames it on Christians. And so he starts not an, an empire-wide, but a local persecution of Christians in AD 64. Luke doesn't mention that. Well, it hadn't happened yet. The last two are the big things. Luke does not mention the release of Paul out of, he wins, his, he wins his appeal case. He gets released. Hey guys, listen, what does Paul do after he gets out of prison in, in Rome after the first one? We don't know for sure. We have some ideas. He's going to end up writing other books later. But he gets released 
But under this persecution under Nero, Paul's going to get rearrested and ultimately martyred in A.D. 67. Luke doesn't. Hey, that one of all things, that one and the next one, I'm telling you, if these had happened, Luke would have written about it. But he doesn't. And then the last thing, obviously, you guys help me. You see the date. What happened in A.D. 70? That had it happened already before he wrote, Luke would have talked about it. What happened in A.D. 70? The destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. And boy, what a, a big effect that had on New Testament theology and the way the, what Erica was just referring to as she was leading up to that song. All right, you ready? So the last thought there. The date... The events in the book of Acts, what we're going to be studying, we're going to cover about 30 years. So about 30 years. Roughly about A.D. 30, from about A.D. 30 to A.D. 61 is the time period we're going to be studying. Number three, notice the third thing, is the recipient. I'm looking at Luke. So if you would, make sure that you're back at Luke. That's where we're going to spend most of our time because Luke actually introduces the book of Acts. We know from verse number 3 that there's this man called Most Excellent Theophilus. You guys help me. Theophilus, first thing with the striking, we notice, man, what kind of name is that? Theophilus. Theophileo. Theo is a, is a title, that is a, is a phrase, a word that stands for what? Theo is God. We study theology. We're studying the doctrine of God. What is philus? What is phileo? And that is what? Love. So here, write this down. Theophilus, Luke is writing to a man named Theophilus that he has met. And his name means lover of God, one who loves God, one who is loved by God, one who's a friend of God. So Luke is writing to the friend of God who loves God. That's at least what his name stands for. Who is he? Quickly, let's hit some theories. The main theories are as follows. You with me? All right. I know you're writing, but stay with it. Here we go. Luke goes with Paul to Rome to appeal his case. Paul's a prisoner. Luke is not, but he's tagging along. Uh, kind of has Paul's physician, Paul's servant, and he gets to do that. They allow that to happen. And apparently as they get to Rome, they meet somewhere this man named Theophilus. Here's why we don't know. Theory number one, write it down. Theophilus was a seeker who was not yet saved. He's someone that maybe Paul under house arrest, he starts witnessing to his captors or those who are going to be handling his case. As Paul always does, he starts trying to win people to Christ. And so Theophilus apparently is engaged. Maybe he's a seeker who's not yet saved. Number two, maybe Theophilus is a brand new Christian, a new Christian who needs to be grounded in the faith. Why is Luke doing all of this? Because he wants him to grow in his certainty and assurance and faith and believe in, believe in the things about Christ. And so he's either trying to win him to Christ or he's trying to grow him in the faith since he's possibly a new convert to Christianity. Uh, if anybody wants to go next level, I'm going to throw something out just real quick, real quick. Both of those things may be true. This, I like this, this little theory I'm about to throw. Wouldn't, wouldn't guarantee it, but I kind of like it. It is possible that Luke writes the gospel of Luke, gives it to a man who's unsaved seeker, not yet saved, 
But maybe he gets saved as he goes through the gospel of Luke and then Luke adds the book of Acts so that he now deepens his faith. You say, where would you get that from? Some have noticed that he, in chapter 1 of Luke, he refers to him as most excellent Theophilus, giving him this exalted Roman title. But in Acts, he drops the most excellent Theophilus because now we wouldn't call you that. Now you are possibly just seen as a brother in Christ. You're just one of the family. So that's one way of looking at it. I'm not going to have you write this thought, but I'm going to hit it quickly because, again, it matters. We know he's a Roman official and a high-ranking one. Apparently, he may have been hearing some very anti-Christian slander. And so to offset that, it is possible that as Luke meets him, maybe this man is handling Paul's case. Maybe this man is able, he's such a high position, he's going to make a ruling about Christianity. And so Luke wants to put a favorable view of Christianity. Watch. And the way he does that is by writing that he wants this Theophilus to know you're not the first Roman or high-ranking Roman to hear what Christianity is about. So I want you to have certainty. I want you to get the whole story. Here's the thing. Christianity is no threat to Rome. And the way he does that, both in Luke and Acts, is by showing there are multiple other high-ranking Roman officials who've already heard and studied the things of Christianity, and they have all found favorably that it is no threat. It could even come under the umbrella of Judaism. No, it's not. But in their idea, Christianity just be kind of like Judaism. It's the same God, the same Messiah belief that they have, and so it's no threat. Now watch how Luke will do that. He's going to show people like Pontius Pilate. He mentions him. He's the Roman governor of Judea. He tries Jesus, the very founder of Christianity. Six times the Roman governor says, I find no fault in him. Luke wants him to know that. The centurion, a high-ranking military, they very much respected and gave great credence and authority to their centurions. Romans put them way up here. What they, how do they respond? He shows the, the, the centurion at the cross. What's his final summation? That man on that cross, he must be the son of God. Luke wants that to be known. In Acts, in chapter number 10, another centurion named Cornelius is going to get saved and become a Christian. As Paul goes on his missionary journeys and goes to the island of Cyprus, the leading man in the whole island, the leading Roman citizen on the whole place is Sergius Paulus. He's going to get saved and become a Christian. So Luke wants him to know this. Eventually, Paul's going to make it to Greece, down into southern Greece, into Corinth. And there's going to be this big uproar, and Paul seems to be in trouble. But the Roman leading man, the leading Roman man named Gallio makes a ruling in Paul's favor and in Christianity's favor. Paul's going to end up in Ephesus, and there's a riot. Finally, the leading city clerk, the leading city official who is Roman, steps forth, and he declares, you guys got to stop doing this. They've done nothing wrong. So he says, it's no threat. It does nothing wrong. Over and over, this keeps happening. Eventually, he gets down in the latter chapters, and Felix, Governor Felix, Governor Festus, and even this, they bring in some help from a man named Herod Agrippa, King Herod Agrippa, to rule on Paul's case. All three of these Roman leaders are like, man, I see nothing wrong. I don't know why these Jews are so mad at him. There's nothing wrong in this Christianity or this man Paul. And so, Paul, uh, so Luke just keeps putting Christianity in a favorable light, having already been ruled on by other Romans. So who is Theophilus? Well, I do want to mention one last theory. Most of you know this already, but maybe some of you have not. Some say he's actually not a real person. That Theophilus just stands as a code name and being symbolic of all those who love God. 
And so Luke possibly, I take it literal that there's a real man named Theophilus. But some say, that's just a code name for all of us who love God. And that's who Luke wrote this for, possibly, quickly. Number three. Is this the third or the fourth thing? All right, we've looked at author, date, recipient. Number four, we're moving. Here we go. Title. This will be the most brief one. Um, The title is officially, and by the way, this was, I think, applied in the 200s. The title of our book, everybody catch what I'm about to say? Ready? The title is officially The Acts of the Apostles. A lot of other people say that's not a good title. It's a fine title. It is the title, so it's a fine title. Um, Some would say that's misleading because you would think you're going to be reading and studying the Acts of all the Apostles. When really the only ones we really study are the Acts of Peter in chapters 1 through 12 and then Paul in chapters 13 to 28. While we call them the Acts of, of the Apostles when it really should be called the Acts of Peter and Paul. Others would say, but even that's misleading because it sounds like they're the ones doing this. When in fact we know the real power, these are just normal men, but they're empowered by the Holy Spirit. So write this down. Some would propose the better title for the book of Acts is actually the Acts of the Holy Spirit through the Apostles. That'd be a great title, and that's what many people go for. But guys, since we're going back to Luke and looking at Luke and Acts as a two-volume set written by the same man, having already read verses 1 through 4 of Luke, we're going to say, and again, you would... You're not going to find this title, so it's not a real title. But a great title would be the following. Write this one down. The ongoing acts of Jesus by his spirit through the apostles. That's a great title. The ongoing. So Luke would say, hey, there I wrote about what Jesus began to do until he was taken up to heaven. And now this book is about the ongoing acts of Jesus. The achievements of Jesus. Wait, I thought he, no, he's still doing it. By his spirit in and through the apostles. And by the way, let me throw this out. Another little fun fact. Probably the last one I'll give you. The Holy Spirit is mentioned over 50 times in this book of 28 chapters. That wasn't the case when we preached on Romans here. And it wasn't the case when we preached on Matthew or on Wednesday nights when we touched on Philemon and went through those expositionally. This is a dominant theme is the Holy Spirit. Number five. I want to share two precautions with you this morning. So before we get into this book, let me pause right here. What I'm going to go into, these two precautions, ladies and gentlemen, is not my way of laying a foundation to protect Baptist doctrine. Not doing that. What we're doing is saying, this is wisdom, this is proper, and so it affects how we're going to interpret some things. And all of you ought to right now say, Lord, give me wisdom to understand the two precautions that are coming. Number one, this is one of the longer notes I've ever had put on the screen. I'll say it first, and then it'll be up there. Everybody ready? Very important what I'm about to say. Lock in. Pray. Lord, help me to get this. Precaution number one is the following. Acts abounds in transitions. Now Watch. Transition is where this is where they're at, this is where we're starting, and this is where it's going to be more permanently. This is where they're at, this is where it's going to be more permanently. We could say into the church age. This is going to be the more permanent reality, but this is where they're starting. And this right here in between, that's the book of Acts. So there's going to be some transition that's taking place from that to that. Now listen, I'm going to give you three transitions. Transition number one. 
We're going to transition from the ministry of Jesus personally to the ministry of the apostles. So in the gospels, the apostles are watching and listening and Jesus is doing it. Then he ascends and in the book of Acts, they're doing the ministry. That's a transition. Transition number two, again, Erica just read it to us this morning. This is important. We're going to go from the old covenant, the old testament, to the new covenant. Things are going to change. We're not going to need what's going on over there at the temple any longer. We're in a time of transition, but the temple's still there. And they're still offering sacrifices even though Jesus has died on the cross. We're in transition. Third thing, this is important. There's a transition from Israel as God's witness nation to the church as God's witness people, which is made up of Jews and Gentiles. So it's transition from Jesus to the apostles, the old covenant to the new, from the the, the nation of Israel being God's witness nation to the church being God's witness. But you say, okay, Jeff, that's great. Why is that important? In a moment, I want to have you write this down. Catch it first. We need to be careful that because of this transition that we don't just build our doctrines based, this important word, solely on what happens in the book of Acts during the transition. You don't build doctrine based solely, if I only see it here in the transition period of the book of Acts, you don't go building doctrine on just the transition period. Our doctrine needs to be validated by the later teaching in the epistles. And somebody right there should say, amen. Amen, Jeff, you're right. Thanks, Jeff. You're right. Now write that down. This is a book of transitions. People get in a lot of trouble because they don't have anywhere in the Bible. In fact, sometimes they'll, they'll have beliefs that go against the teaching, the later teaching of the epistles. But they'll dig in and make their whole system of theology based on something they see really happening in Israel during the transition. Let me give you an example as you're writing that. When the book of Acts begins, there are people who have truly put their saving faith and trust in Christ. How many true believers on earth at the beginning of the book of Acts have the Holy Spirit living inside of them? How many have the Holy Spirit at the beginning already living inside of them? Zero. So catch, transition. Begins, no Christians have the Holy Spirit. Transition forward, some believers will have the Holy Spirit. By the end of the book, all believers will be having the Holy Spirit in them. So if you only make your doctrine... On digging on one section, you're going to get in trouble in your theology because the epistles make it clear all Christians have the Holy Spirit. Second precaution. Are you in Luke? Everybody in Luke? Look at, you just look and y'all give me the word I'm looking for. Ladies, you, that group of ladies, y'all should find this. Literary style matters. Here's your second precaution. What kind of literary style is Luke going to be writing with? Because, everybody catch what I'm saying? If you're reading poetry in the Bible, or if you're reading a proverb, or if you're reading a parable, um, or if you're reading prophecy, the way we interpret Scripture in those settings is affected by what we're reading. What kind of literary device is Luke obviously writing it with according to verse number 1? Narrative. This matters. He is using, everybody with me, he's going to be using historical narrative. That's going to affect how we're going to interpret. Dennis Mock helps us here write the following note. 
Mach writes that narrative reveals truth. Everybody listen. Narrative. And they did this. And then this happened. And that happened. And he said that. And she did that. And that. And tell them the story. Narrative reveals truth indirectly. Mock teaches. Whereas discourse, what I'm doing this morning, preaching a lesson, preaching a message, discourse reveals truth. Both reveal truth. Narrative reveals truth indirectly. Discourse reveals truth directly. A lecture, a sermon, a speech, a letter that has been written where Jesus is talking to his disciples. He's talking to a crowd. The apostles stand and teach and preach. That's just straightforward truth. Do this, don't do that. Believe this, don't believe that. But when we're telling the story, it's not so clear. In fact, to finish your note, write the following. Get it first. Hear me. Not every single recorded event or activity or word in the book of Acts, though it's recorded accurately, not all events or words have God's endorsement. They don't all carry God's endorsement on it. That's important. Now watch. It's recorded accurately and what God would say is yes that is what happened. But just because that happened and they said that and did that. Doesn't mean I'm telling everyone to do what they did. That's important. That will affect how we interpret the scripture. So that's your second precaution. Beware because we're in a transition book. And beware. You say then is this thing even valuable? Oh it's very valuable. We'll see that in a moment. John R.W. Stott writes the following. That's a long note, so I may just pause and give you a moment to write those 33 words that I left blank. It's not quite that many. There's a lot. That note matters. That's, that's an important precaution. Remember, we're dealing with narrative. All right. I'm going to move forward. Stott writes the following about this idea of how do we handle narrative. Again, Mock says narrative reveals the truth. It just does it indirectly. Stott writes, quote, How are we going to interpret these narrative passages? How are we going to interpret the narrative passages? For some of them are not self-interpreting and contain within themselves few, if any, clues as to what we are intended to learn from them. Great question. He asks, are they necessarily normative? These, this narrative, this telling of all that happened in the early church, is it normative? He continues. Is the behavior or experience recorded in them meant to be copied? And he ends up citing several examples. The charismatic signs of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. As we're going through the book of Acts, here's what we're going to find. Visible Signs, the whole, like literally you could see the Holy Spirit. Is, you don't see Him, but you see signs. Audible signs of the Holy Spirit. People will be speaking in languages they've never studied. Suddenly they have it. The Holy Spirit, there's a sign. People will be able to have powers to heal and do miracles because the Holy Spirit is that normative. He also uses this idea of church elections. Oh, everybody perks up when there's a church election. Who you vote for? Well, now church elections in the book of Acts was done by drawing lots. In essence, rolling the dice. That's what they did in the Bible times, early church. That's how they decided who would be the 12th apostle to replace Judas. I guess casting lots and rolling the dice is the way God wants us to fulfill church 
offices, really? He can tell, another one he uses, having our possessions in common. The early church had their possessions in common. Seeing a bright light and hearing a voice at the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. You guys had that, right? You saw a bright light. You saw Jesus in bright light. And you heard him speak to you audibly, did, did you not? Maybe. I did it. He continues, Stott says, it should be clear from these examples that not everything that people are recorded in Acts as having done or experienced is meant to be repeated in our lives. So how shall we decide? How are we going to tell? He says, we have to look for teaching on the issue, number one, first, in the immediate context in the narrative. Number two, then in what the author writes elsewhere. So first, is anything here? Does he write something later that's going to shed some light? And then third, he says, finally, in the broader context of Scripture as a whole. Is there anything immediately here that's going to give us a tip? Is this supposed to be something we're experiencing? Or was it just for that time? Does he write something later? Or is there anything else in the New Testament that sheds light on this? What should be happening? What should we be experiencing that they did? He gives an example that some of you will get. Hopefully everybody gets later. He writes, for instance, the apostles, for instance, the apostle Peter's, catch it, plain statement to Ananias... That his property, both before and after its sale, was his own and at his disposal. You remember that? Some of you remember that? There's this man, Ananias. He sells his property. Peter straight up tells Ananias, again, back to our quote. For, for instance, the apostle Peter's plain statement to Ananias that his property, both before and after its sale, was his own. At his disposal. That will prevent us from regarding all Christian possessions as being necessarily held in common. So early on, we're going to find the Christians have everything in common. So is that a rule we're all supposed to live by? If so, I've, some of you, I'm going to borrow your car. And I will be using your house for a little getaway. I just need a key to your house. You just get me a, everybody get me a key to your Is that where we're supposed to live? We've got some stuff to learn. But there are principles there. But he, Peter's words there shows, no, that doesn't mean that we today automatically put everything in one big pile. And number six, our last category, is purpose. What is the purpose? So to understand the purpose that Luke wrote his gospel in Acts 4, go back to Luke chapter 1, because Luke 1, 1 through 4, write that down. Luke chapter 1, 1 through 4 includes his purpose for Acts. So really Luke 1, 1 through 4 introduces Acts along with chapter 1 in Acts. But really it begins with Luke 1. So that's why we're going to use him today to introduce. Now you've written that. Now let's go back and read Luke 1, 1 through 4 again quickly. Ready? Here we go. What's the purpose of Acts? Everybody with me? We've looked at the author. We've looked at when and where it was written. We've looked at the recipient theology, uh, Theophilus. We've looked at the title. And we've looked at some precautions. And now we want to look at what's Luke's purpose. What's he aiming at? Now look at verse 1 again of Luke 1. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us. Let me pause right here. Many people have written about the life of Christ and his impact on the earth. More people have written about Jesus than anyone else far and away. Verse number 2, you can tell that Luke has some people in mind. Just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. 
I believe what Luke is doing here, some people have been compiling and sharing their narrative verbally, and some have even written it down. I think he's probably here referring to Mark has written his down, and Mark was an eyewitness to some things. And then also Matthew, possibly just before Luke, or near the same time, and maybe he's thinking Mark and Luke have written that, and Matthew sure was an eyewitness to a lot. But what he's saying is, I'm not that, but I love verse number 3. In spite of not being an eyewitness, Luke says, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. And I'm writing it for this reason. I want you to grow in your certainty concerning the things that you've heard about Christianity. I love that verse 3. I like this line. He's not cocky. He's not arrogant. But boy, he is confident. It seemed good to me also. Yes, they've written about it. Yes, they were eyewitnesses. But the Holy Spirit just put a confidence within Luke. I'm the right guy for this job, and I know it. I like that. It reminds me years ago, 19 years ago, I think Jonathan was five years old, our son Jonathan. And we were in Newberry County, and he got bit in the face. And we thought the dog just kind of snapped and scared him. And then five-year-old, little, little guy. He pulled his hands away, there's a gash here and a gash here and a gash here and a gash here all around his mouth. It was nasty. So we booked it down to Newberry Hospital, and a buddy of mine ride with me. He's like, hey, be careful, you're going to get a ticket. They're all through here, police officers. I'm like, they can follow me. They can follow him behind. I'm moving on. We've we got to get him there. And when we got there, we met with the, the evening. It was nighttime, and there was a, it was a Saturday night, and there was a surgeon on hand, and it was a young guy. And he says, definitely he's going to have to have surgery. And he says, uh, so here's your options. He says, you can, uh, he says, we can call in a plastic surgeon, and it'll take them a little time to get here. We'll keep him comfortable. When they get here, they can do it. He says, or I can do it. He says, I can do it right now. And I'm like, okay. And Deanna and I talked, and of course, I'm simple. It's not my world. So I just said, right, be honest with me, man. I said, if this was your son... So as your child, what would you do? He said, it's a great question. He says, if this was my daughter and I was you, he said, I'd, I'd get the plastic surgeon. He says, because that way you'll know you did the absolute best you can do. I said, okay. He said, but if it was my son, he said, I'd get me to do it. He says, because I can sew just as good as a plastic surgeon. I'm the best sewer in the whole hospital. <laughs> and the nurse over his shoulder was going, was he being cocky? He wasn't. I like that guy. We went, you do it. And when you see Jonathan, you don't see anything on his mouth. Luke's like, I know there are eyewitnesses. I'm the guy for this job. I've been doing and studying this. I've had a passion for this for years. I, I'm not the only one who's going to write this story. I'm not the first to write the story. I'm not going to be the last to write the story. I'm going to be the next to write the story. And I'm going to write an orderly account. So notice two things about Luke's purpose. Number one, Luke's purpose was historical. His purpose was flat out historical as we see in verse number one through four. You've read it again. His purpose was historical. Now, let's hit it quickly. Luke's stated purpose is to give, I'm writing this book, these books, so that you will have an orderly account. Doesn't mean chronological order. I'm going to theme this thing in a way that's going to make sense and impact your life. And he's saying, I'm going to write an orderly account of all the things that have been happening. Not everywhere. Everything that has to do with Jesus Christ. Next note. I want you to write this down. Luke sought 
to write and, and compile a trustworthy historical compilation of Christianity from the birth of Christ until the first imprisonment of Paul in Rome. So that's in essence the birth of Christ we're going to say is around 4 B.C. Yes, the dates are wrong. 4 B.C. up until 61 A.D. when Paul is in his first Roman imprisonment. So about 65. I'm not writing everything about church history, but I'm going to write about the highlights as the Lord leads me to the first 65 years of Christianity. And I'm doing it. Here's what Luke is saying. I'm doing what I'm doing for a purpose. I'm after something. I want your faith to grow. I want your certainty, your assurance to grow. What he's saying is, Theophilus and Christians, I want you to know that our faith is anchored in realities, real things. This is real stuff. We're not like myths and pie in the sky. These are real events. Jesus is a real person. He really died. He really rose again. He really ascended. He really put these guys in charge. And he really left a plan for the church. And that's what we're going to find in the book of Acts. Our faith is anchored in certainties. So, all right, quickly. If Luke's not an eyewitness, I'm going to propose the following pretty confidently. Do you remember when I said that Paul, after his third missionary journey, comes back and he brings the love offering to Israel and his own people arrest him? He's in prison for two years in Israel. Paul's in prison for two years. We know that while Paul's in prison for two years in Israel, eventually he's going to appeal his case and travel to Rome... We know that Luke is in Israel with him, and the belief is that Luke is wearing out eyewitnesses. He would be the guy, if you were an eyewitness of something that happened, hey, now tell me about that. I want your version. Hey, you, tell me. And he's just taking it all in. So that the result, as he sits to write these two things, it reveals that this man is a master expert historian. Let me give you an example of that. You're in Luke 1. Flip over to Luke 3. Just flip right there. Luke chapter 3, think of the work it would take to write the first two verses of Luke 3. Just as an example, Luke 3, you say, are you preaching? on? I'm not preaching on these two verses. I just want you to get a feel for what kind of expert historian we're looking at. Luke 3 verse 1, he writes, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, we are currently in the second year of the presidency of Joe Biden. He writes, before they had the internet, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius, which Caesar? Tiberius Caesar. Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee and his brother Philip tetrarch of the region of Ituria and Trachonitis and Lysanias tetrarch of, tetrarch means a joint ruler, one of four joint rulers. Continue in the middle of verse 2. And his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, now verse 2, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. We know Caiaphas is the literal high priest, but we also know that Annas was the father-in-law, the real power behind the high priest. So Luke correctly includes both names. He says, at that time, when those seven people and those are those five people and seven regions are going on? He says, at that time the word of the Lord came to John. Which John? There's lots of Johns in the New Testament. John, the son of Zechariah, and it happened in the wilderness. 
Do you have any clue? I wish I had five minutes to develop. You ought to go home and think, what would it take for somebody to be able to write 15th year, Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate, governor. He's governor. We're going to give these other guys this other title. They're tetrarchs. This guy's tetrarch of that region, and that guy's that region. This guy, these two regions. It's like, ah! Unlike anybody else, Luke goes out of his way to put things in a historical, literal setting, and it builds confidence in the Bible. What's his purpose? Everybody with me? His purpose is historical. If we just look at the layout of the New Testament, just the layout, now we should be able to answer, whoa, the book of Acts is very valuable. Write this down. The New Testament's layout helps to reveal the importance of Acts. It's a very important book. How do we know? Well, just look at the numbers. Some of y'all know these numbers already. Let's write them down. In the New Testament order we have, we have four biographies of the life of Christ. Four. Write that number in. Four biographies. Then what do we have? One history book of the early church. So we have four biographies of the life of Christ. His life and death and burial and resurrection, ascension. Then we have one book of early church history. That's the book of Acts. Now watch the next number. Watch. 21, 21 epistles, otherwise known as letters. Epistles is the word we use for letters. And these have to do with doctrine. 21 books or letters that have to do with doctrine. And then we have one book of prophecy at the end of the New Testament called the book of Revelation. Does everybody already see? Whoa. Just the math tells us the importance of the book of Acts. We got four of those, only one of those. We got 21 of these, only one of these. Hmm. There's only one of something, it's important. Continue writing. Acts is the one and only God inspired sequel to the Gospels. So we got four Gospels Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and then just one sequel. Don't have four sequels. One, what happened next? We get one sequel to the book of Acts which also transitions and sets us up for the later teaching of the epistles. So we got four of these, one Acts that's a bridge to both because this one book is going to show how that carries on and it's going to help us make sense out of this. Watch what I'm about to say. If the New Testament went Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Romans, and there was no Acts, We have a lot of questions. Here's the questions. What is the church? I remember Jesus talking about it, but what is it? When did it start? Where did it start? Who's its leaders? Big question. What in the world are these Gentiles doing in here? Who do they think they... They're not in the church. They're prominent. Who gave it? They are proselytes to Judaism, right? No, no, they're, they're Gentiles. And they're leading, and they're dominating in number. How in the world... Well, this guy, Paul. Who's Paul? Well, he's this guy. Why is he going around calling himself an apostle? He wasn't in the Gospels. Never read his name. Why do we care that he wrote 13 books? And then you begin to see the importance of the book of Acts. What I'm about to read you is a lengthy quote, admittedly. So you're not going to write this. It is purely hypothetical. I don't want anybody to get mad. We're not promoting this. We're just saying what if. Just go the what if. Ivor Powell writes the following. This is thought provoking. I've known people that had this idea. I've never heard it put out so like, oh, okay. Powell writes the following. Hang on. If it were necessary, hypothetical, 
if it were necessary to eliminate any book from the canon of the New Testament. Oh, we've got to get rid of one of the New Testament. If it were necessary to eliminate any book from the canon of the New Testament, he proposes the book of Acts would almost be the last choice. Why? I'm going to compile and cut and splice his quotes together. He, he writes, God gave to the world four Gospels. But if one were lost, the remaining three would be able to supply much of the missing material. The New Testament contains 21 epistles written by leaders. 21 leaders of the early church. But even if six or seven of these were destroyed, the other letters would become the reservoir from which new supplies would be forthcoming. You say, well, then there's Revelation. But even there, he writes, even the book of Revelation belongs to this category. Why? Because much of what John, the revelator, wrote concerned the return of Christ. Yet it must be remembered that Daniel, Ezekiel, Zechariah, and Matthew all described similar truth. Therefore, it might be claimed that even the removal of the last book of the Bible would not be an irreparable loss. It would be, but he's saying, not compared to this other option. He says, on the other hand, the Acts of the Apostles stands alone in magnificent isolation. Why? Because throughout the centuries, it has been the only authentic history book of the early church. It tells the story of the expansion and growth of the Christian assemblies throughout the Roman Empire. What he's saying is this information is unobtainable anywhere else. It, what we're getting ready to study. I'm not telling you it's more valuable than Romans or Ephesians. Don't mess with Romans or Ephesians in my world. But don't mess with Acts. We've got to have it. You need to understand what's going on in the book of Acts. Have I sold you on that yet? I'm trying. This book's important. Have you ever wondered? Most maybe have not. Some have. Boy, it would take forever to unpack this next note. Hear it first. Have you ever wondered why Christianity has taken such a foothold and in comparison had much more success in the West, Europe, the Americas, than the East or the Far East or South down in Africa. Why did it take such a foothold that direction? Hear my note and then I'll have you write it and you ought to go home and think about this one. Hear it first. Acts is important because Acts shows, here, listen, Acts shows how in God's providence and in the power of His Spirit, Christianity's leading missionary, what's his name? Paul. Acts shows how in God's providence, we love miracles, we talked about providence, providence a few months ago, it's where God sovereignly controls little things, decisions to do or not to do that. There's a storm, the wind blew. That fell down. That was built. This person with little things. That's the providence of God. Here's a note. Acts shows how in God's providence and in His Spirit's power, Christianity's leading missionary used the protection, the roads, the common language, and the peace of the Roman Empire to plant reproducing churches in key cities in various provinces around the Roman Empire. Provinces like Syria and Galatia, Macedonia, Achaia, southern Greece, 
and Asia, Asia Minor. And these churches reproduced. So we wonder, why did it go westward so successfully? Because God sovereign, and the book of Acts conveys how God sovereignly, providentially headed it that direction. And now we know why. Now write that down. All right? Catch those four things in the middle. Paul, under the protection of the Roman Empire, the literal road systems, the common language. You guys understand these things do not exist today. The reason it's not expanding as fast around the world today, there is no common language. Brian and Martha have to spend three and a half years trying to learn French. The Connards, who will be back with us in December. This is a big obstacle. There's no peace to just go through borders as you want. Paul, a Roman citizen, is going where he wants, planting, reproducing churches. And oh, by the way, possibly even as far over as Spain. And we think that probably did happen. Secondly, you'll get to this in a moment, so we'll put this thought up in a moment. So what's his purpose? It was historical. We need an orderly account. And then the second thing, Luke's purpose was evangelistic. His purpose was evangelistic. His purpose is historical, and his purpose was evangelistic. Would you finish with me back over in Matthew 28, where we left seven weeks ago? Matthew 28. Let's finish over there. Luke's purpose was historical. Give an orderly account. Luke's purpose was evangelistic. And then you have two thoughts under that. His purpose is evangelistic. Now watch. I'm going to use these words carefully. Luke's labor to write Luke and Acts. His labor was an act of obedience. His labor was an act of obedience. Now look at Matthew 28 verse 18. After Jesus' resurrection, the 11 disciples go up to Galilee and they meet Jesus on a predetermined mountain. And the Lord meets with them. Look at verse 18, kind of fresh this morning. Very quickly, but freshly. Jesus came and said to them, to the eleven, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So here's this human being, Jesus. We know he's also the Son of God, fully man, fully God. He says, All authority in heaven. I have all authority in heaven. I have all authority on earth. And now he's going to use that and say, Therefore, because I have all authority, I can tell you what to do. And I can tell them what to do. Verse number 18. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Go, make disciples. That's the key thought. Make disciples. As you go, make disciples. How? The implied thing is winning them to faith in Christ. And then what? Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Holy Spirit. And in verse 20, teaching them, these new converts... In the nations, teaching them to observe, not just to know the teaching of Christ, but to observe, to do, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. Hey, you 11, come here. You 11, I'm going. Your mission. Go make disciples all around the world. As you go, make new converts, get them baptized, and then teach them to do everything that I've ever commanded you. So by verse 20, we learned seven weeks ago that verse 20 means, write this down, all of the Great Commission applies to all Christians. All of the Great Commission applies to all Christians. If you're here this morning, you say, I'm a Christian. The Great Commission applies to you because 
they were told to go teach new converts to become disciples who teach other people to become converts to Christ to become disciples. Do I have another note there? Oh, yes, I do. So catch this thought. Watch. Luke, he wasn't there. He wasn't there when this was said. But when Luke heard this, we're supposed to do everything he told you to do, which is to go make disciples and get them baptized and teach them how to share their faith and win more people. Then when Luke hears it, he's like, I, I hear that is personal to me. And so write this second part down. Both evangelism and discipleship are vital for every believer. Every believer should be about the business. You, there was a line. I forget it now, but there was a line in the next to the last song we sang a few moments ago. I am here. I'm alive. Now I'm alive to tell the story. Now, that may not have meant much to you, knowing I'm talking about this. That line caught me. Oh, it's his goodness and his mercy. I'm alive. Why? To tell the story. You're alive. If you were here this morning, yes, the mercy and the goodness of God has redeemed me from my sins. Okay, that's awesome. You're sitting here alive today to tell the story. Evangelism and discipleship both matter. Have you ever come across this person? They're a Christian. Boy, they have a deep burden for lost people. And they win people to Christ. They share their faith. And they win people to Christ. And then they have nothing to do with them because they got more people to win to Christ. That's out of balance. You ever met this person? They love a good Bible study. They'll sign up in a heartbeat. They'll be there. They want to learn. And they'll even teach a good Bible study. But they'll never tell a lost person about how to go to heaven. That's out of balance. Both matter. Luke says, I'm going to do this. I'm going to write these two books out of obedience to the Great Commission. And then the second and last thought is this. Luke's labor was not just an act of obedience. It was an act of love. It was an act of love. Verse number three, back in Luke 1. You don't have to turn there. Just hear it. Luke says, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you. Everybody catch that? It's a lot of work to do what Luke did. Luke, why did you do this? Because I'm obeying the Great Commission. Luke, why did you do this? I love that guy, Theophilus. I'm going to win him. Right now, Theophilus, he's, he's in one of two categories. Either he's a seeker. He knows some stuff about Jesus, but he doesn't quite know enough to get saved. And I'm going to fix that. Or he's, he knows enough about Jesus. He's actually trusted Christ as a Savior. But he doesn't know who he is in Christ. He doesn't know how to grow in holiness. He doesn't know how to share his faith. He doesn't know he's supposed to be sharing his faith. I'm going to fix that. He has some knowledge of Christ. I want to give him more knowledge of Christ. Write this thought down. Luke gave all this effort for the benefit of the church, yes, but immediately for the benefit of one man. One man, all this work. How do y'all think the new... The, the Bible was inspired. How do you think writers of the Bible? Is this your idea? I guess those 40 guys must have had a cloud come in the room they were and they kind of zoned out for a while and they woke up and there's a pen in their hand and there's a big long either papyrus or a scroll 
in front of them and lo and behold there's a bunch of words on it and it's in their handwriting and don't really know what I wrote do y'all have any clue how long it would take to compile and research painstakingly all the research to write Luke and Acts all that for years and yet Luke does it why out of obedience to the great commission and out of an act of love for this man I want to do whatever it takes. I want to get people more knowledge of what's been going on, more knowledge about Christianity and its founder, the Lord Jesus Christ. What are you willing to do for one person? I'm going to pray. We're not going to do a long, I'm not doing heads bowed, eyes closed, bunch of questions. Here's your questions now. What are you willing to do for one person? See, Luke found himself in a situation where there was a man who knew some things about Jesus, but he didn't know everything. He either didn't know enough to actually put his faith in Christ. Do y'all know that this week we're getting ready to go out and then before this day is over, some of us are going to be exposed to people. Oh, they know some things about Jesus, but they don't know enough to literally, genuinely put their faith and trust in Christ. Are you ready to evangelize them and fulfill the Great Commission? Are you ready to do that? Have you been doing that? Luke set the example. Or... We're surrounded by people, and they're sitting here right now, and they have some knowledge of Jesus, and they've trusted Him as Savior, but they don't know who they are in Christ. They, don't, they think Christianity is a nice little thing to put in the back pocket until I die and go to heaven. No, this dominates our life. This is what Luke, Luke wrote, so Theophilus will know. This will become your identity. It will become your mission in life. Read the book of Acts. That's what it was about. Christianity, you're here for a purpose. Do you share your faith? Don't answer out loud. Have you yourself ever won someone to Christ? You don't save them, but have you ever been the one that's told them enough and in that moment led them to faith in Christ? Have you ever done that? Do you say, well, Lord, it's not blessed it that far yet. Okay. Do you share your faith? Do you share the faith how to be saved? Do you know how? Do you know how? Can you honestly say, I know how to share my faith? Do you share your faith? Do you know how? You say, I don't know how to share my faith compelling. Do you need to learn? If you need to learn, be ready when we touch on this, either in December or early 2023. Maybe you need to be like, I need to refresh on how to share my faith. That's why I'm here. I want to be like Luke. Would you stand this morning? Father, we thank you for this book. Thank you for what you're going to show us. Father, I pray that we would take what this very important book that connects your word for us in the New Testament helps us make so much better sense of it. Lord, I pray that we would pour ourselves into it. Pray that you would give great enlightenment. And Lord, that we'd follow this example that's set by Luke. Lord, he wrote historically, very importantly, but Father, we know that he wrote and labored because of obedience to the Great Commission and because of love. Father, if there's anyone here this morning, Father, if there's anyone here this morning or listening right now or that will listen to this and they really are Christian and in their mind they think they are so, so busy they don't even have time to read. Father, they don't even read what Luke took months, no doubt, to write. Lord, convict them. If he did that, Father, then surely we cannot just read it but we can study it so that we're better prepared to make disciples. Would you let Graceview become, more so than ever, a disciple-making church to bring glory to Christ?
We pray in his name. Amen.